Good morning, church family. How are you guys doing today? Before we study God's Word, before we open up our Bibles, I want to uh, lead us in a time of prayer for the uh, war in Ukraine and for the Ukrainian people in particular. Uh, I'm not sure you realize it, but uh, Ukraine is often considered sort of the Bible belt of Europe. Uh, 70% of Ukrainians uh, claim to be Christians. So there's a fairly good-sized church there. It's sort of the Kiev is considered the spiritual capital of Europe in some ways. And so uh, it's really heartbreaking to see what's going on right now. I think it's not just a physical battle, but a spiritual battle that is, is going on in that land. And uh, before I lead us in prayer, I want to read a few verses from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And then down to verse 6. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Please pray with me. Lord, we praise you that you are our refuge and strength. And when the things in our world seem so wrong, Lord, that we look to you as our present help in trouble. We still our hearts before you, Lord. Our hearts break for the things that are going on uh, over in that part of the world, both for the Ukrainian people and you know, there's a sizable church in, in Russia as well, Lord. We Pray for those who call upon you, Lord, that they would sense your presence and experience your help and your peace. We pray for the many uh, Christian ministries and orphanages and Bible schools in Ukraine, God, the leaders of them, that you'd guide them and, and help them. And we pray, Father, for the safety and protection of Ukrainian citizens and military who are under attack right now. And we pray for a workable ceasefire even to come out out of this and to uh, result in something good or please change the the hearts of those who want war and change those plans and bring peace we would pray but lord we don't presume presume to know uh, how all of this fits into your sovereign plan but we want you to be exalted and glorified like we just read God, I'd also pray for the church leaders, the pastors, the military chaplains as they care for their people so affected by this. Uh, we pray that those in Ukraine who know you, Lord, that they would be the light of the gospel to people around them. God, we, uh, may you work in a way that is clearly seen and exalt your name in all the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 By the way, if you are interested in hearing a little bit about Bible prophecy and how it possibly relates to what's going on in Ukraine right now, 
It's part, we spend a little time on Thursday nights before our Revelation Bible study and talk about current events. And uh, we, if you're not doing anything on Thursday nights and you're free, uh, at 7 o'clock right here in this room, our Bible study on the book of Revelation. We'd invite you to come. So I'm Jim, and I'm part of the pastoral team here at Lake City, and it is a great privilege to share God's Word with you all this morning. I invite you to take your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9.38 is where we'll begin. Okay? And we're in the portion of Mark's Gospel where Jesus is nearing the cross, nearing the end of his life, and he's preparing his disciples for that. In Mark 8, he announced for the second time to them that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, and then he was going to rise again. And so he's preparing his disciples for this momentous occasion, and that means he's taking them deeper in their understanding of what it really means to follow him. Two weeks ago, David Ayer preached a sermon about denying ourselves, and I believe that passage is very important to understanding what Jesus is going to say in this one we're looking at today. So I'm going to read a few verses from Mark 8 as well that sort of sets the context. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for the sake of the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And in those words, Jesus presents two very different approaches to living life. You either deny yourself or you live for yourself. Either you embrace the cross of Christ or you ignore his cross. Either you save your life for your sake or you lose your life for Christ's sake and for the sake of the gospel. And that is two very different ways of doing life. And essentially what Jesus is talking about here is being a disciple. If anyone would come after me, he says, that's what a disciple is, someone who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. It's more than a churchgoer. A disciple is one who learns and follows the Lord Jesus on a personal level by obeying what Jesus taught us. So this is really a call to a life of radical discipleship. And that's what we're going to sort of unpack today, what that looks like, what Jesus said about that. But it reminds me of a book that David Platt wrote in 2010, simply called Radical, about this very thing, in fact. And it was a challenge to a life of radical discipleship. One of the things he said in it is this, radical obedience to Christ is not easy. It's not comfort, not health, not wealth, and not prosperity in this world. Radical obedience to Christ risks losing all these things, but in the end, such risk finds its reward in Christ. You know, sometimes the word radical is used in a negative connotation. That's not how I'm using it today. I'm using it in a positive sense. As a synonym for thorough or intense or even extreme. Because that's what Jesus is talking about here. Although... What some see as a radical commitment to Christ is really, I think, what Jesus considers the normal Christian life. 
As Tom shared with us last week, one of the most fundamental things we need to understand is that the kingdom of God is radically different from the world. It's an upside-down kingdom. And nearly every perspective that we have learned from our culture here is opposite, completely opposite the perspective of God's kingdom. So now Jesus is going to talk to his disciples in the passage we're looking at here about some common pitfalls for those who follow him. Three warnings, as it were. And the first one is the folly of a sectarian mentality. The folly of a sectarian mentality. And you might be wondering, well, what does sectarian mean, Jim? Right? So the word sectarian refers to a partisan or an exclusive or sort of a competitive spirit. It often includes sort of an us and them mentality. Here's a more formal definition. Sectarian refers to exclusive, a competitive, or a partisan mentality. It's the idea that your group has the exclusive grasp on what's right, what's true. And that can apply in religious groups. It can apply in politi to political parties and other areas as well. And in verse 38, where our passage begins today, we notice this sectarian or a competitive attitude among the disciples. Let's pick it up at verse 38. Jesus said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And I have to think that Jesus must have had some rather discouraging moments as the leader of this band. Right? He must have wondered at times, where were you? Did you not hear what I just said? It seems like so often when Jesus would teach them something, the disciples would very soon afterwards sort of violate the very thing, the principle that he was teaching. And that's exactly what's going on here in Mark 9. You'll remember that Jesus had just taught his disciples, both, both visually and verbally, that true greatness is found in serving those who are thought to be less important. In fact, he brought a little child into their midst and put him there as a reminder of that, it says in verse 36. Greatness in God's kingdom is when we willingly choose to serve others before ourselves. That's a king, the kingdom mind and servant heart that we need. And as Tom suggested last week, the kingdom framework for greatness about placing others above ourselves is a radical call. On Wednesday, I was part of the Lakewood Pastors Prayer Gathering with uh, four other pastors from the Lakewood area. And it was sort of a picture of uh, this passage, or at least potentially could have been. There were five of us sitting around this table in a pastor's study in one of the churches here in Lakewood, enjoying fellowship in Christ and drinking coffee together. And, and uh, understand this, this was five pastors from very different churches and groups. Okay, so the potential for sectarianism was certainly there. and there were, I, there were certain thoughts I had going through my mind. There always is in situations like that. And, and, uh, but we still were able to enjoy sweet fellowship in the Lord. And we prayed for each other and we prayed for our community. I'll come back to that later. But back to our passage. What, what did John say again? Jesus, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And I think there's a little bit more here than we than first meets the eye. Perhaps even a bit of jealousy going on. After all, it seems that this man had been successfully casting out demons. 
The disciples were not exactly setting any records in exorcisms, as you, we might remember. Okay, do you remember what happened the last time the disciples tried to cast out a demon? Earlier in this chapter, okay, yeah, they couldn't do it. While the three, the inner circle, were with Christ up on the Mount of Transfiguration, the other nine disciples had tried to cast this demon out of a little boy, but couldn't pull it off. So listen, I don't think this part here that we're reading today is any coincidence. I think the disciples were unhappy that they had failed, and then they run into this guy who wasn't part of their group, and he was having success. And so they were critical of this man, and they tried to stop him. And that's the essence of a sectarian or a competitive spirit, an us-and-them mentality. But if we have a kingdom mindset, I think is what Jesus is saying, is that we won't have that kind of a competitive spirit. We will realize that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are on the same team. Let's keep reading, verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. As we read this, there's a few other stories that might come to mind that are very similar to this one in God's word. I want to remind you of a, just a couple of them that are similar to this one. First, John the Baptist's disciples reacted in a very similar way when they observed more people starting to follow Jesus than were following John. Listen to what they said in, in John 3.26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, that would be Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. You've got to love that. In other words, hurry up and do something. Okay? You're losing your crowd. Okay? Jesus is becoming more popular than you. Well, John set them straight in strong terms. And among other things, he said this, verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now that's a kingdom mentality. Then when Paul was in prison in Rome, late in his life, his friends come to him. They told him that, that some were preaching while he was in prison and they were advancing their own careers, their own ministries to Paul's detriment. You remember Paul's response to them? When they, he heard that, what did he say? Well, Philippians 1 tells us, it says, those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. But that doesn't matter. Whatever, or whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way, so I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. Again, Paul had a kingdom mindset. When we see God at work in somebody else or in another group, it's easy sometimes to sort of become jealous and even to want to find fault. But we do ourselves and we do the gospel great damage when we start to have the attitude that we're the only ones who can do it right. I must confess that from time to time, more often than I want to admit, that I wrestle with that temptation when I'm around pastors with bigger churches or more successful. Uh, I can wrestle with some of those same feelings, same thoughts. And I think that's just one of the dangers of ministry. 
David Jeremiah shared a little ditty that I think describes how narrow we all can become if we aren't careful, though. And it goes like this. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I do, do always as I do, then and only then, I'll fellowship with you. Listen, beloved, that may sound silly to some of you, but honestly, I think that describes a lot of people whom I've met over the years. It's a sad fact that exclusiveness and a competitive spirit often hinder the progress of the gospel. And that's what I mean by a sectarian spirit. And Jesus didn't let that sit. He took it on. He dealt with it. And the way he dealt with it was to call them and call us to have a kingdom mindset and a servant heart. Or we could put it like this. John calls us to radical love and humility. To radical love and humility. And this has everything to do with how we relate to people with different backgrounds and different beliefs and views than we have. I remember recently hearing someone that I respect say this, and it was in the context of Bible prophecy, and I quote, he said, be careful about being too dogmatic. When we die, I think we will all find out that only 80% of what we believed was right. <laughs> I appreciated that, and I think he was probably a little bit high in his percentage. In other words, there's plenty of room for humility in our lives. And by the way, this does not mean that we shouldn't do our best to interpret the Bible accurately. Okay? Paul wrote, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But we should also be very careful about who we put down or who we call a heretic or who we refuse to learn from. And all of this requires sort of a constant heart check and a whole lot of prayer. Related to this, I think that we should admit that there's sort of this tension here for, for many of us. We, we can't just ignore false teaching. After all, almost every New Testament epistle involves warnings about false teachers. And as we're going to see when we get down to verse 42, I think Jesus is specifically talking here about those who are younger and more fragile in the faith. So we need to be especially careful about causing them to sin or to fall away. And yes, we do need to ask the question, are they truly preaching Jesus Christ? Do they believe in the deity of Christ? Those are critical issues. Yeah, they might look different or have different methods or backgrounds than we do, but we should take Paul's approach and say, if they preach Christ and Christ crucified and risen again, I will rejoice. In other words, let's be focused on the essentials of the gospel. And let's not get all whacked out about different methods or different interpretations about things that aren't essential to the gospel. But then notice this. Jesus goes on to highlight that they have the same Lord. Look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So what's the key question that we should be asking? Well, notice the words belong to Christ. Okay, Jesus is saying we're on the same team because we have the same Lord. 
And this is the core of what you and I need to really care about. Do they really belong to Christ? Are they genuine followers of Jesus? And if the answer to that is yes, realize that someday we will both stand before the same Lord at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account, and he will reward us both. The words of Jesus here, if taken to heart, will protect us from jealousy and a competitive spirit that divides us from other believers and hurts the work that God is doing in this world. Now Jesus is going to switch gears a little, and he's going to confront another common problem that serious disciples need to be aware of. And that is the failure to deal with sin seriously. The failure to deal seriously with sin. So Jesus is continuing these warnings for his disciples, and he's talking to them and to us by extension about what discipleship truly looks like. So let's look at verse 42. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So apparently that little child was still standing or sitting in their midst. And Jesus refers to him here. And then he gives this very frightening statement. And it's very clear that Jesus did not take lightly John's statement back in verse 38. Okay? And so he devotes significant time here to explain the danger of causing other people to stumble. It's also clear from the words who believe in me that Jesus knew the man they'd tried to stop and that he was a believer and that he had been offended in the process. So what's the warning? Jesus warned them about causing other people to stumble or fall into sin. And the word sin translated uh, the word translated sin there in that verse in the ESV is the Greek word skandalizo, from which we get the English word scandal or scandalize. And it means basically this, to cause someone to stumble or to cause them to lose faith. And so this is a very sober warning against damaging the faith of another person. Jesus is talking about the potential we have to influence other people in such a way that harms their faith. See, we all have relationships with people. Therefore, we all have influence in their lives. Jesus is saying, be careful about your influence. Now, maybe you're asking, well, how exactly does that work? What kind of things can we do that would cause somebody else to sin? I think in the context, the first one would be to have a sectarian attitude and to discourage someone who's truly trying to serve the Lord. But there's other things that come to mind, other things such as hypocrisy, and sexual sin, and substance abuse, and anger, just to name a few. For example, Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. We can cause other people to stumble or lose faith in many ways. So the way that we live before others, the way we treat other people in the family of God is a very serious thing, a very serious matter to our Lord. And the punishment, Jesus said for it, can be disastrous. He says it's better for them to be drowned in the sea than to cause somebody to stumble. Now, a millstone is a very large, heavy stone 
used to grind grain into flour. And in that day, there were basically two sizes of millstones. The smaller one was used by a woman to grind a small amount of grain by hand for her own family. But Jesus is talking here about the great millstone, it says, the larger one that was turned by a donkey and used to grind a, a much larger amount of grain. Jesus was referring to the larger millstone in this instance. So you see it there on the, the right side with a with the, uh, piece of wood through it. Can you imagine trying to swim with that thing tied around your neck? And the millstone imagery was doubly dreadful to the Jews who generally feared the sea and they regarded drowning as a horrible form of death. So what a graphic way Jesus used to convey how serious he took this matter. He was saying, do not do anything that might damage the faith of a child or of a younger believer. Let's continue reading. Listen to the words of Jesus. Remember, this is red letter stuff, verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So Jesus uses three parallel statements here to illustrate the importance of dealing with sin. The hand, the foot, and the eye symbolize our entire life. By the way, at this point, if you grew up in a church, you might be sort of hearing a little tune in your head right now. Any of you thinking about that song, Oh, Be Careful Little Eyes, What You See? Yeah, me too. You got it. Anyway, so when Jesus said hand, it symbolized what you do, right? The foot symbolizes where we go. The eye symbolizes what we see. So this essentially symbolizes that we need to avoid sin in every area of life. And in the simplest of terms, Jesus is presenting, again, two options before us. One which flaunts one's freedom versus one which takes life very seriously. Okay? And the disciple who takes life seriously, Jesus says, deals with sin seriously. They deal ruthlessly with sin rather than causing to someone else to stumble because of their carelessness. So Tom spoke last week about the person who's content to live a mediocre Christian life. And I think that's exactly what Jesus has in view here. Okay, Jesus is telling us that the consequences of that kind of mindset are frightening. And the point is that we need to take swift and serious action against anything that might take us away from our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord isn't telling us to literally cut off a hand or cut off our foot or to pluck out an eye. He never intended anyone to use self-mutilization. After all, sin is a heart issue, he's taught elsewhere. It's primarily a heart issue. So this is an example of hyperbole, which 
uses extreme exaggeration to make a strong point. Now, maybe you're wondering, the question that came to my mind is, why would Jesus, speaking to the disciples, why would he warn them about hell? I mean, isn't our salvation secure? Don't we believe in eternal security? Yes, absolutely we do. And so does Jesus, I believe. The Bible is very clear that when one is truly saved, that you can't, they can't lose that salvation. In fact, Jesus said in John 10 that, that I hold you in the palm of my hand and no one will snatch you out of my hand. So because of that and many other places, we know that salvation is secure. It's forever. However, we don't know that everyone that was with Jesus on that day was saved. In fact, if he was talking just to his 12 disciples, we know that one of them at least was not saved. So I sort of wonder if this wasn't sort of a, a call out to, to Judas to change his mind. But for those of us who do follow Christ, who do take the Christian life seriously, Jesus is saying, if there's something in your life that is causing sin, we should be ruthless about dealing with it. In other words, Jesus calls us to deal with our sin radically. Why? I think because we tend to get comfortable with our own stuff. We make excuses. We tend to give ourselves a pass. You know, it's, it's just a little, I just stretched it a little bit, no big deal. Or I deserve that money anyway, so I, I'm just going to keep it. Or I, no big deal if I just take a quick look on my phone, right? No one else will ever know it. It won't hurt me. Listen, beloved, that kind of mentality is settling for mediocrity. Rationalization of sin is an indication that you are just like those who are heading for the fires of hell. Will we make mistakes? Absolutely. Okay. Will we do the Christian life perf perfectly? Of course not. But the key is when we do sin and we recognize it, we deal with it quickly and ruthlessly. One of the men in our men's leadership class last year asked me recently to be an accountability partner for Covenant Eyes. Covenant Eyes is one of many internet filtering tools that's used for accountability and to overcome temptation pornography temptation. Uh, we use it in our own home and uh, many people do, I know. But anyway, it was, it was a privilege to be able to say yes and to be asked to support him in that way. And it actually has led to uh, praying for him more often and to some very good conversations. You know, when I think of dealing with temptation ruthlessly and radically, that's what comes to my mind or one, one of the things that comes to mind. You know, some people wouldn't dream of asking for that kind of help or that kind of accountability. But that is exactly, exactly how the Lord wants us to deal with temptation. In 2003, Aaron Ralston was hiking alone in eastern Utah. You might remember this story. And while he was descending a canyon, an 800-pound boulder became dislodged, crushing his hand and pinning his arm. Ralston had not told anyone about his hiking plans, and so he knew that no one would be searching for him when he didn't show up. Therefore, if he didn't get free, he would likely die. Well, after being trapped like that for five days, 
he pulled out his pocket knife and cut off his forearm to set himself free. He then repelled nearly 70 feet and hiked three hours before he was rescued. So here's a question for you. If you were faced with that same dilemma, what would you have done? Would you lose a limb or would you keep it and die? Furthermore, what needs to be amputated in your life today? What do you need to cut out or to radically remove? We'll come back to that. By the way, the word hell, Jesus used the word hell three times in this short passage. Verse 43, verse 45, and verse 47. And some people are surprised to hear Jesus speak such frightening words about hell. But are you aware that Jesus spoke more about hell than he spoke about heaven? It's true. So why did Jesus talk so much about it? I think it's because sin is serious and hell is real. Sin is serious and hell is real. Hell is a real place. And so Jesus spoke often about it because he wanted to warn people so they wouldn't go there. He spoke of it as an actual literal place and a place of separation from God and a place of everlasting suffering and punishment. So sin is serious and hell is real. And that's why we are to take swift and decisive action against it in our own lives. That's our Lord's second warning. And finally, the third warning. And it's about the fiasco of not being salty. The fiasco of not being salty. And I'm using salty in a positive sense here. I'm not encouraging you to be angry or to be petty or hostile, of course. Jesus used it here in a positive sense. That's how I'm using it, right? And verses 49 and 50 are admittedly two of the most difficult verses in Mark. In fact, there are at least a dozen different interpretations of verse 49 alone. So this will be a fun challenge. Let's read verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. What in the world does that mean? It seems such a peculiar thing that Jesus said, especially to our ears today, living so far away, both culturally and in time. But it seems to me as, that as Jesus spoke about the fires of hell in the verses we just read, that it reminded him of something else that he wanted to say. And I think it reminded him of the sacrifices at the temple, some of which in, involved fire and salt. And I think the point that he is making is that following him, following Christ, is serious business. Listen, friend, the Messiah we are following is going to the cross. Jesus experienced a great deal of suffering and persecution, and we should expect the same in our lives. Yes, there will be a crown someday, but for now there's more suffering than there is glory. So I see these last two verses as dealing with that suffering and the trials that are just going to naturally be part of a life as a disciple of his. Say, so how do you come to that conclusion? Well, it's definitely a strange mix of metaphors in verse 49 until you look at Jewish sacrifices. God, remember, God required the Hebrews to bring unblemished animals for their sin offerings. All of that pointed to him and to his eventual sacrifice. 
And many of those sacrifices were entirely burned up on the altar. Salt was often part of the sacrifice, and it was a symbol of the covenant between God and man. And it was a necessary ingredient, especially for the grain offerings. For example, Leviticus 2 says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. To our ears today, that's a little strange, but to Jesus and the disciples, that was familiar territory. They recognized that when offerings were brought to the temple, often they involved salt and they were usually burned up completely. So they were a total sacrifice. Reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 12.1. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. I think that's part of the picture Jesus has in mind here. Let's be clear. Following Christ includes the wonder and the joy of the mountaintop experiences. But it also includes the valleys and the trenches. In fact, I think most of life is more likely there than the mountaintop. But remember, we are following Christ. And where is he going? Yeah, he's going to the cross. And the Bible says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. None of us want that, right? We want the easy life. We want the mountaintop. But you won't get the life of true discipleship if you avoid all the hard things in life. Listen, I believe Jesus is calling us to embrace the suffering, to embrace the hard times, to embrace the sacrifice. Because that's just part of the life we've been called to as his disciples. A life with a servant heart and a kingdom mind. This thing God calls us to do is not easy. It is wonderful and it's filled with adventure and it is rewarding. But it is not easy. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, I'm going to the cross. And you will have your cross as well. Finally, let's look at the very last verse of chapter 9. And I think this is where the major application is. Verse 50 says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So think of their arguing with each other about who's greatest. Think of them trying to stop this other follower of Jesus who was casting out demons. Jesus concludes by saying, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In the days of the New Testament, salt had two primary purposes beyond sacrifices. Salt was used to preserve and salt was used to enhance flavor. First, they used salt to preserve food so it wouldn't decay. For example, they salted meat to make it last. But salt was also used to flavor food and to enhance its flavor, just like we use salt today in our cooking. In fact, I think that's likely the primary 
use of salt today to make things taste good. And I don't know about you, but when I eat corn on the cob, for example, I want to eat it with some salt on it, right? And preferably with a bunch of butter on it, too. But when I eat a piece of corn on the cob that's really good, I don't say, wow, that, that's great salt. Of course not. Why? Because the salt is only there to enhance the flavor of what it's put on. What Jesus is saying here is you can be a Christian, but you can be a flavorless Christian. How do you become a flavorless Christian? Well, you worry about living a life that is easy, and you worry about fitting in and being popular in the culture, and you aim to put yourself first rather than putting others first. And if that's you, I'm not saying that you aren't a Christian. I'm just saying that you probably aren't a salty one. That kind of person has very little positive influence for Christ. They don't attract people to the Lord, in other words. And others might not even know that you are a Christian. So here's the point. Jesus calls us as his disciples to have a radical influence for him. You can't be a disciple without salt. Salt is the essence of discipleship. Maybe you have a lot of non-Christian friends or family members and you're sort of the salt, one of the only salt in their lives among them. And when you walk away, they might even think to themselves, you know, there's something different about her. There's something different about him. I kind of like it. Or you might be the salt in your Bible study or in your small group. Okay? Which means when you leave and you go home, people don't say, wasn't she wonderful? They say, wasn't that an incredible study tonight? Wasn't that an incredible group we just had? You know why the group was incredible? Because the salt showed up. Every one of us who are truly walking with Christ are salt to someone. Jack and I swim at the YMCA in Lakewood, and this week we were walking out of the Y after exercising, and one of our brothers in Christ here from Lake City was at the front desk, and he was talking to the young man that was there checking people in. And as we got close, we heard him sharing his faith and talking about the Lord and asking some great questions. And rather than engaging in the question and being an interruption, we just started praying and smiled and walked by. But that's being salt. What Jesus wants us to know is this. There are two ways to live life. And you can't be a disciple without salt. Because salt is the essence of discipleship. Here's Jesus' point. This is a tough thing that I'm calling you to, this life as a disciple, a follower of mine. It's going to be painful at times. You're going to be persecuted just like I am. You are going to the cross with me if you are really my disciple. And so you have a choice. If you follow me, you are going to be required to lay down your life as a living sacrifice. Where do we go from here? I want to review, first of all, Jesus taught his disciples three things. We need to repent of a sectarian, of an exclusivism mentality. Second, we need to take our sin seriously and confront it radically. 
And third, we need to strive to be an exceptional influence for Christ. In terms of application, I see three next steps I want to highlight with you. Number one is I choose to be a radical disciple. I choose to follow Christ radically. That's the first application because that's the primary one I think Jesus made to his disciples. Choose to follow the Lord with all that we are. David Platt wrote, we have a master who deserves radical, a radical sacrifice. Jesus died for us. He deserves us to radically make sacrifices for him. But listen, friend, that's a decision every one of us has to make for ourselves. Okay, to lay down our lives, to take up our cross and follow him. That doesn't just automatically happen because you grew up in a Christian home or you go to church or, or whatever. But it's a choice every single person must make. You have to present yourself to him as a living and a holy sacrifice. And if you haven't done that or you haven't done that recently, why not tell the Lord that you are ready to make that commitment to him today? Next step two, I choose to take my sin seriously. To take my sin seriously because following Christ is serious business. And it includes dealing seriously with our sin. So if there's something that you are doing that you know is sin, it's time to eliminate it. If there's some place that you are going that is sin, it's time to stop going there. And if there's something that you are viewing or listening to that is sin, it's time to eradicate that from your life. Whatever the Spirit of God is convicting you about right now, whether it's an action or whether it's an attitude, I hope that you will deal with that seriously and choose to repent and eliminate it. What do we do when we sin? What do we do when we fail? You do know that that's sort of a daily thing in our lives, right? Well, thankfully, Jesus provided the way of forgiveness even for the sins we commit every day of our lives. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, he's waiting to cleanse. He's willing to cleanse us. Friend, we won't do this thing called discipleship perfectly. But when we fail, there is forgiveness because we have a gracious God. So thankful for God's grace. So whatever the Spirit of God is convicting you about today, Please choose to deal with it seriously. Next step number three is for those who have not yet chosen to follow Christ, who are not yet following him as their savior and master. And here's my invitation for you. It's to choose to follow Jesus Christ as your own savior today. I choose to trust Christ as my savior. Following Jesus is the most wonderful, incredible experience you can ever have in life. And whatever demands go along with following him, they are well worth it. And one day you and I will stand before him and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I heard someone say just recently, if you're a Christian, you are on a journey toward your reward. 
But if you are not a Christian, you are on a journey away from your reward. Because everything you live for is here on the earth, and when you die, you will lose it all. Even worse, Jesus says you're on a journey toward hell. Because that is where everyone who rejects Christ is heading. But Jesus came to this earth as the sinless Son of God in order to go to the cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life with him in heaven forever. It's not enough just to know that. Okay? We have to make the decision to believe in him, to believe that is true, and ask him to forgive us. And as we close in prayer now, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that if you never have. So would you bow with me, please? Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for your love and your grace and your forgiveness. And Lord, we confess that we sin against you all the time. Thank you that you are willing to cleanse us as we bring our sins and confess them and repent of them to you. Lord, we confess you deserve our radical surrender and sacrifice. You, Jesus, went to the cross for us and you died in our place and all you suffered was for our sin. We want to live our lives for you. And then, friend, if you're here and you haven't taken that initial step of faith to trust Christ, I just invite you right now to just silently pray in your heart of hearts and say to, say to God, say, Father, I confess I've sinned against you. I've broken your laws. I can't earn your forgiveness, but I can receive it as a gift by faith. And so today, by faith, I trust Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for dying in my place and rising again to forgive me. And I surrender my life to you. I thank you for your forgiveness. God, we thank you for your love and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. God bless you.